0: Good morning. It's good to see you all on this wonderful three-day weekend for many of you. Uh, Yay for President's Day. Amen? Amen. Yes. Uh, In honor of first initially, of course, George Washington, the first president of the United States, and then later developing to include all uh, former presidents serving. So I hope you enjoy this Weekend now uh, a few things first in about two weeks uh, Wednesday so not this Wednesday but uh, the following Wednesday we will be again our constitution and bylaws that you have the Q and A so uh, for those who normally come on Wednesday that's what we'll be doing in two weeks uh, from not this Wednesday, but the next, and anybody who wants to join into those, I'll also be going into Sunday school classes and uh, various other small group scenarios and things like that, so if Wednesday doesn't work for you, it is okay, Uh, there will be other times and opportunities, and of course, you're always welcome to come see me individually as well. Uh, if you have questions and things like that. So as fun and as exhilarating as it is discussing uh, documents like Constitution and bylaws, uh, I know many of you have just been chomping at the bit, waiting. Yes, my prayers have been answered for this day. Um, It is important, and I hope to answer many of the questions you have. Now, this morning, we will be in Exodus 14. Uh, The title of the sermon is Not Death, but Deliverance. Not Death but deliverance. Now, this is the greatest uh, redemptive event. We've been going over and over, right? This is the greatest redemptive event in the entire Old Testament. Uh, the Jew, if you would have ask them in the, the first centuries, early centuries before Christ, uh, you know, they would want to live the... the Exodus centered life, the, the Exodus centered synagogue, if you will. This was the defining redemptive moment in their history. This was what they would look back on. So much of the, the prophecies uh, key in on this event when they are looking forward to the time of Christ, especially Isaiah and many, many more. Now, it is a humbling passage to preach on for a preacher. It's like preaching on the cross of Christ. You, you just uh, how do you handle it? How do you tackle it? How do you handle all of the implications? It, it is impossible because the rest of the Bible is a flushing out of that. All of eternity will be a fleshing out of the implications of what happened at the cross of Christ for us. And the same is true for the Exodus. So there's just no way, there's just no way I'll be able to handle all the implications. So what I hope to do this morning is by the grace of God, by the Spirit of God, to uh, prime your well, if you will, to go and meditate on all sorts of things this week and to discuss with one another over lunch and over family dinner and over family worship uh, the things that you have seen in the Exodus and how they connect uh, very much with the cross of Christ. Now, we will try this if God permits. Uh, and he will be glorified. Hopefully, we pray that Christ would be lifted up. Now, we're not going to talk about Hebrews 11, how it ties into the crossing of the Red Sea, how by faith they crossed and they walked through. We're not going to talk about 1 Corinthians 10, how how this is a type of baptism, actually. So as you are baptized here into the waters, you pass through the waters of death, so to speak, then they likewise also pass through the waters. Uh, baptism of Moses, we are baptized into Christ. We just won't be able to unfold all of this, but I mention it so that you can take note of it and explore it in your own as you have time and of course we'll we'll discuss these things in months and years to come but this morning time is short so let us pray and jump into it father in heaven Lord, we ask your blessing upon your word, Uh, the reading of your word. This is your revelation of yourself to us as sinners. And may it sink in and and transform our hearts and our minds with a greater love, with a greater devotion, with a greater uh, gratitude and joy over what you have done on our behalf. May we leave here this morning saying salvation is of the Lord from start to finish. And so, Lord, as you do this great work this morning, I also lift up especially our sister church, Pukalani Baptist, this morning. We thank you for uh, the 30-plus years of faithful service of Pastor Paul Konashiro to the gospel. And I pray that you would renew him, uh, reinvigorate him in this new season of his life for great faithfulness and preaching of your word, and that you would see many people... Uh, upcountry in that area come to Christ. We pray that you would guard and guide and protect uh, that body, and we lift them up as, as co-laborers in the gospel, and we lift up the, every church that is faithfully preaching the gospel across the island this morning. We pray that many, many would see their own sinfulness, their own need for a Savior, and how you have acted to provide that Savior in Jesus Christ. And would you draw them, we pray, in Jesus' name amen all right here's the big idea the lord leads you not to death but to deliverance so that's the big idea this morning the lord leads his people not to death not to destruction not to ultimate annihilation but to deliverance and that is the lord's purpose uh, in what he is doing for his people now deliverance for what deliverance to see the very glory of god Set free to enjoy and be with God forever. Now we have, uh, I have three points. Number one, the entrapment. Number one, the entrapment. Number two, the entreaty. The entreaty. And number three, the exodus. Number three, the exodus. Very uh, simple for you if you're taking notes. Uh, And and I'll tell you a secret. I actually have about eight points, um, but it would maybe kind of overwhelm you if I told you I had eight points. Uh, So the three points actually become a framework for you to hopefully remember better the eight points later as you are discussing them. Um, But those are the three, the entrapment, the entreaty, and the exodus. The Lord leads you not to death, but to deliverance. Now, After the Lord has called them out of Egypt, he is taking them the long way, right? Not the logical way uh, to the promised land, but the long way through the wilderness. We now see that he yet turns into another illogical step he wants them to turn back. And I'm imagining if I'm Israel and I'm wandering and I have any inkling of the layout of the land, and they do because they've been slaves there for centuries, that that they would be saying, Moses, what are you doing? Where are you leading us? And no, this is the worst possible place to be because there's Egyptian outposts here, there's the sea here, and we are going to be stuck. And yet that's exactly what they were told to do, what God led them to do by the pillar of cloud and fire. Now, what was this all about? What was the purpose? Why why would God do such a, a seemingly foolish thing? It was a trick, actually. He was going to lead Pharaoh into a trap. God was actually hoping that Pharaoh would be told they're wandering in the land, and then Pharaoh would change his mind and and harden his heart, and the Lord would be active in this, and the Lord is going to get glory over Pharaoh, and he was going to demonstrate his power to his people as he decisively finally humiliates, routs the Egyptians, and delivers his people. And God's name would be glorified, magnified, and known forever and ever. And we will come full circle with the question that Pharaoh asked in the beginning, Who is Yahweh? Why should I listen to him? God was going to answer that finally, decisively, forever and ever. Who is Yahweh? The nations would know who he is after this in short god was going to be glorified now verses one through four are like a broad overview aren't they they're like a broad overview to pique your interest it tells you what Israel's going to do they're going to turn around and they're going to wander in the wilderness it tells you what egypt's going to do they're going to pursue them it tells you what's going to be the outcome god is going to get glory but it doesn't tell you exactly how that all is going to come about it kind of piques your interest, doesn't it? It's meant to do that. It tells you the whole gist of the beginning, and then it's going to flush out in the coming narrative how that exactly plays out. Now, let me ask you by way of application, is not that the message of the scriptures concerning your life this morning? Is that not what the scriptures do for you today? You stand here, and if you were to read the Scriptures, the New Testament specifically, and the Old Testament with all of its pictures to give us hope and to teach us the ways of God, it tells us what God wants us to do. It tells you how to live. It tells you what you're, you are to do. It tells you what your enemy can do, what you can expect. You can expect to be persecuted, to have hardship, trials. It tells us the end result. Christ-likeness, God's glory, your joy, eternal life forevermore. It tells you all of that. What you're supposed to do, what you can expect the enemy to do, and what the final result will be. Glory. But it doesn't really tell us all the particulars of how that will full unfold in our lives, does it? That's a question to be seen, isn't it? Written word by word, page by page, chapter by chapter in your life. You know these things. This is, I know that, that I'm supposed to love the Lord with all my heart, soul, mind, and strength. I know I'm supposed to be conformed into the image and likeness of Christ. I know that the enemy is going to attack me, and I know that God will be glorified in the end. But the day-to-day, I don't exactly see how that's going to unfold. And sometimes it looks just like this, a jumbled mess, doesn't it? Beloved, these things are written to the end that you might have hope. That you might have hope. So I don't know what your particular situation is this morning. I don't know what is particularly heavy on your heart that you're trying to listen to me, but at the same time you're kind of drifting to that to that thing that's there. I don't know, but I know that this is written to give you hope. And so as we unfold that, remember that. That's exactly the way the scriptures are in your life. Now, verse five begins to unfold this plan for us. We don't have to wait long in this case. Pharaoh, being humiliated, just routed in the ten plagues, now changes his mind and decides to to go back after them. He comes to his mind and says, wait a minute, we just, what did we do? We just let half a million people go, more than half, two million people, 600,000 men alone. We just let them go. That is crippling to the national economy. They were bits on the back of slave trades, and there they are going goodbye with all of our gold and silver. I, I, don't, I don't know what was happening. This is, uh, that was dumb. Let's go get him. So he loads up 600 of his best chariots. It doesn't say 600 chariots only. 600 of his best chariots, chosen chariots, verse 7, and, and all the other chariots of Egypt. So every piece of equipment, military might they had, they were summoning it to pursue these people. Now you may say, you may think, The skeptic in here, wait, you said 600,000 men or even 2 million men, women, children. And yet, 600 maybe, I mean, what are we thinking? How many chariots are in Egypt? Maybe 1,500, even that. What is that number pales in comparison to the amount of people? How is that even a fight? Because these are 600 trained, experienced, uh, lethal fighting force that's going out after them. And trust me, you can control... Many, many people, if you know exactly what you're doing and you're able to work together, you're, it's, it's amazing. And this is what's happening. So they are now pursuing them. What's happening here? Why is Pharaoh so dumb? You think, I mean, just 10 times he got owned. He's a false god. He thinks himself to be a god. Uh, the Egyptians believe he's a god, and he's been uh, humiliated 10 times in a row. What, what is going on in the psyche, in the mind of Pharaoh to be so foolish? to think this is a good idea. Proverbs 19:3 gives us an idea. It says this: When a man's folly or foolishness, when a man's folly brings his way to ruin, his heart rages against the Lord. When a man's folly brings his way to ruin, his heart rages against the Lord. Pharaoh's own foolishness had brought his way to ruin, and what you're seeing now is his heart raging, not thinking, not weighing all of the natural, uh, understandable circumstances, the pros and cons, he is just raging, and this is what happens, isn't it? When our hearts rage against the Lord, you all know people like this who maybe are just so full of anger. They're not even acting logically. They're not even thinking and seeing the big picture. They're just raging against the Lord. And they have an agenda, and they're going to get it at all costs. And what they don't see is they are tightening the noose around their own neck. They're digging the hole deeper. They're pushing the rock up a hill only to fall back on them. That's what Pharaoh's doing. We also have to see this against the backdrop of the gods of Egypt. The gods of Egypt. See, the Egyptian pantheon of gods, they were capricious. They were known to change their mind on a whim to, if you worship me well, then I'm in a good mood today as this god, and I'm going to bless you. But you know what? If you offend me today, you might just all of a sudden get abandoned and left. The Greek gods were like this as well. They were capricious. They often changed their mind. They were like men unpredictable. And so Pharaoh uh, sees them wandering in the wilderness and more than likely he is thinking that they have been abandoned by Yahweh. Maybe they did something. They fell out of his favor. Now is my time to capitalize on this. He was thinking this God of the Hebrews was like other gods. But see, Pharaoh didn't know the truth. Of the scriptures. He didn't know what would later be written in Malachi chapter 3, verse 6, which says this For I, the Lord, do not change. Amen. You think your salvation is dependent on the fact that the Lord doesn't change? It is. Your life depends on it. Check out the rest of the verse For I, the Lord, do not change. Therefore, you, O children of Jacob, are what? not consumed. God's covenant faithfulness, His unchanging nature, is what our very eternities are dependent on. That He doesn't change. That He is the same yesterday and today and forever. And that He was faithful yesterday. He will be faithful 50 years from now. Because He doesn't change. And therefore we are not consumed. Pharaoh didn't know that. He didn't know this is the God who says, I will never leave you nor forsake you to His people but he was about to learn. He was about to learn the hard way. now Pharaoh's actions serve as a lesson for us on the nature of sin and the actions of Satan and how the two come together to enslave us and keep us in bondage. So when you read this, you should be looking to see this is the nature of my own sin struggles, how Satan is going to use those, and both of them will work together to ensnare me and keep me in bondage and steal my joy. Let me give you a few things this teaches us about sin and Satan. It teaches us, number one, if we resist it the first time successfully, it only departs for a brief season. If we resist it or have victory over it the first time successfully, it will only depart for a brief season often to come back the second time with greater intensity. Many times that's where we get caught off guard, isn't it? We're trying to battle temptation and sin. And we're walking the Christian life and we're like, yeah, I got, I got victory. I prayed. I read the scriptures. I've been in church. I've been in my small group. I've been doing all these things. I got victory and, and I... Conquered this particular sin struggle, I'm good. We let our guards down, but we don't realize it only departed for a season, often to come back with greater intensity, greater ferociousness, with a greater determination to dominate us. It also teaches us that we must not ever think that sin and Satan will let us go to glory without many attempts to re-enslave us. We must not ever think that our sin and Satan, the enemy, will let us just happily go to glory forever after, without many attempts to re-enslave us. And three, we see that the freedom and liberty of God's people often causes their enemies to rage. The freedom. The joy, the happiness, the liberty, the newfound life of God's people, set free from sin, abiding in Christ, will inevitably enrage the enemies of God as Haman and Mordecai in the book of Esther. As the Pharisees and the Sadducees arose with jealousy against the apostles and imprisoned them. You'll find, beloved, if you haven't already, that in your Christian life, you come to Christ, you're free, you're happy, you're joyful, things are, you're, you're growing, you're seeing new things that you've never seen before. You, you've had that, that moment where you're just crying tears because you feel that burden was lifted off of you, and you remember your salvation, it is sweet, and it is not long For somebody comes in and tries to steal that joy, sees that liberty, starts reminding you, you're no different than you used to be. When is this going to change? When is this going to fade? When is this going to... And they're starting to try to steal your joy from you. And this is the nature of sin and, and spiritual attacks. That our freedom that the Lord has given His children enrages our enemies. And this leads us to the next point. The entreaty. The entreaty. Verses 10 through 15. What happens in verse 10? Well, verse 10, here's what happens. When Pharaoh drew near... The people of Israel lifted up their eyes, and it says, Behold, the Egyptians were marching after them. And what's it say? And they feared greatly. They were shaking in their boots, they were cowering. They were so fearful. And the people of Israel cried out to the Lord. Now, what's going to happen is I'm going to give you this brief little synopsis here. The narrative is going to move us from these people who are fearing Pharaoh, a false god, fearing Egyptians, fearing slavery, and it's going to move them to at the end of the narrative, they are fearing God greatly. That's exactly what happens in salvation, isn't it? You move from fearing all these other things that's going to happen. What, if, what about me? What about me? What about this? What about my life? What about my family? What about the future? What about my retirement? What about this? You move from fearing everything else Salvation, you fear the Lord and Him alone. The people cried out as they beheld the Egyptians marching after them in faithless fear. Beloved, without great intentionality, God's deeds, His mercies, His past power and deliverance in our life, without great intentionality, we will forget it in the midst of severe trials. They had just had like 10 amazing things. I mean, they had swarms of frogs, niles to blood, all sorts of flies everywhere, darkness and miraculous light and boils and hail and everything. God working in, on behalf of them. And now in the midst of a severe trial, it's like that didn't even happen. It's as if they, they, they lost their minds. Beloved, without great intentionality, We will, too, also forget God's deliverances in the midst of a severe trial. We learn from this that there are also times of major transition can present great temptations. So think about that. If you just look with broad brushstrokes, times of transition in your life can present opportunities for Satan to attack. So it could be if, if you're a young person in here, maybe in, the, in grade school still or middle school, high school, uh, you're moving to a new grade. Opportunity for temptation. You're graduating high school. New season of life. Transition. Opportunity for temptation. A new relationship. Maybe boyfriend, girlfriend, new husband, new spouse. The transition of life. Opportunity for temptation. New child. New job. Change of jobs. New vehicle, new house, new whatever. Beginning a relationship, ending a relationship. All of these things are opportunities. Retirement for significant temptation to make us forget God's amazing deliverance in our life. Without great intentionality, we will succumb just like they did to this type of fear. Now here his people, in their midst of fearfulness ask significant questions to Moses, but immediately, or ultimately, rather, they're asking these things against God. Why did you bring us out of Egypt to what? Die in the wilderness. Moses, we told you. We told you we didn't want to come out of Egypt. Is it because there wasn't graves enough? I mean, maybe I could have been buried in a pyramid. Right? Maybe. Is it Why did you bring us out here to die? And who are they really accusing? God, and God's answer is not that he didn't bring them out, he didn't lead them out to die, he led them out to deliver them, and to show them his glory, to show them his glory, so he tells Moses to say to the people, Moses said to the people, this is it right here. 13 to 14 versus uh, Exodus 14 verse 13 to 14. You should just uh, highlight or circle or, or bracket however you want to make a note of it in your Bibles. Is it there? It's on the bottom right there. Can we get 13 to 14? 14's not here. And Moses said to the people, "Fear not. Stand firm, And see the salvation of the Lord, which he will work for you today. For the Egyptians whom you see today, you shall never see again. The Lord will fight for you. You have only to be silent. Man, if I wanted to really just do like a three point sermon on one verse of the Bible, that's it. Fear not, stand firm, and see the salvation of the Lord. Amen. And we could just do the whole time on those points. The Lord will fight for you. How kind of God. How kind of God. They've been living in slavery for centuries. As long as any of them can remember. And as they were slaves, the only thing they ever had to worry about was what? What is Pharaoh going to do now? What does Pharaoh want from us now? What is he gonna how is he gonna respond now? Is it gonna be more bricks and less straw again? Now he's gonna that was how he acted when we just asked him to go. How is he gonna react whenever he re-enslaves us? See, for 400 years they have been worrying nothing about anything else other than what Pharaoh thought. Now they're seeing the Egyptians coming and they switch back into this old of thought and behavior, and they're concerned again, what is Pharaoh going to do now? And how kind of God, how kind of him to say, do nothing. Watch dad work. Do nothing. Fear not. Stand firm and be quiet. Watch. Praise God. He is a God who will fight for you. He's not going to ask you right now in your moment of weakness and your hardship in this time. He's going to ask him to fight later. Definitely going to ask him to fight later. But right now, fear not, stand firm, and watch. I'm going to draw you out of slavery, and you are going to trust me. The The Puritans had a saying, if you fear God, you will fear nothing else. If you fear God properly, you will fear nothing else. Watch and see how the Lord will fight for you. Moses, he apparently also cried to the Lord, an inter- intercessor for his people. And the Lord, in verse 15, actually responds with a, with a rebuke, with a rebuke to Pharaoh. You would think the Lord would be like, oh, thank you for crying out to me, now, now here we go, all right? No, 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 this, that's, that's not the way the Lord responds to Moses. He says, what are you doing crying to me? Why are you crying to me, right? Because what did he say? Be quiet. Why are you crying to me? And so God rebukes him, and through Moses, he's also rebuking the people of Israel. In essence, uh, what we see from this is there are times that we are to stand still, pray in faith, and watch God work. There's times for that. Times for just be still and know that I am God. There's a time for that. There's also a time where we're to get off our knees and move forward. We're to get off our knees and move forward. That's what he says to Moses. Why do you cry to me? Tell the people of Israel to go forward. Onward, move. Now, some of you, are fidgeting, freaking out over things, that God's word to you this morning is to be quiet. Watch me fight for you. Some of us have that complex. We're just, uh, what's going to happen? There's, there's, a, there's a, right, they call it, when you see great fear, there's fight or flight. You're going to stand and fight, you're going to run away. I think they should add a third F, just faint, like the fainting goat, Right? Some people are like, (gasps) right, right, the fainting goat syndrome. That's how, that's realistically how many people respond as well. Not fighting, not running away, they just freeze. (gasps) Right? that's how some of us are. We, We kind of freak out. We don't know what to do. There's so many things going on through my head. I don't know what I'm just, if that's you, if you are the fainting goat, the Lord's word for you, fear not, stand firm. And watch, watch. Now, others of you, others of you have a little bit different problem. You're standing firm and doing nothing when God is telling you to move forward. You're standing there after having prayed, after having watched, and God's parted a Red Sea for you. He's made a path, and you're standing there saying, what do I do? God's word for you, go forward move ahead start walking and they would say but but wait a minute forward forward left is to go around right is to go to military fights but forward there's lord um i have a question I have a question, God. Um, there's, there's an ocean. Did you mean forward? You sure he didn't say back? Like, go forward. And the Lord gives him instructions. He doesn't say go around the obstacle. That's impossible. They couldn't. He, he doesn't want them to go back to Egypt. That's ridiculous. He wants to go forward. Beloved, this is the life of the believer by grace, isn't it? By the grace of God, this is your life, always moving forward. God's Spirit is at work in you to move forward. Don't look at Egypt. Don't look at the past. Don't look at your past slavery, your past failings. Don't dwell on them, but rather move forward. There's nothing back in Egypt for you. There's nothing back in your past, your past failings, your past life. It is gone. You cannot go back. You can only Go forward, beloved. Now, there's nothing else for you to do. It's time to let it go and to walk in your new life of freedom. That's exactly what Philippians 3 says, isn't it? Philippians 3, 12 and 14. Not that I have already obtained it, or I'm already perfect. What does Paul say? You know what he says but I press on to make it my own because Christ Jesus has made me His own. This is what God's doing for Israel right now. He is making Israel His own. And He says, Brothers, I do not consider that I have made it my own, but one thing I do, verse 13, forgetting what lies behind and straining forward to what lies ahead, I press on toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. Amen? Beloved, this morning... Hear God's word for you. If you are not taking advantage of God's escape provided for you, go forward. Go forward. Now, some of you would say, very practically, that sounds good, Pastor. I like that. But but what does that mean? I don't know what that means. I don't know how to go forward. I want to go forward. I, I don't know how to go forward. If you're unsure about what it means to move forward, let me tell you this. Here's what it means. Move forward. Here it is move forward in the way that looks the most like Christ. If you're unsure about what that means practically in your life situation, move forward in the way that conforms you the most to Christ. Now, you still may be unsure about that. If that's the case, then I would encourage you to seek godly counsel in your small group, in a wise Godly disciplined individual in in the biblical counseling center of Maui, perhaps seek counsel uh, that 's always a good idea, even if you are confident to seek counsel, but move forward in the way that looks the most like christ that 's the entreaty go forward, and then number three the exodus verse sixteen to thirty one verse sixteen to thirty one this is perhaps one of the most widely known events in the Bible you ask uh, somebody who's never read the Bible their entire life, at least in America, and they'll probably be able to recount to you, at least in rough detail, the events of the Exodus that God parted the Red Sea. And the people walked through on dry ground. Now, there's a lot of Uh, scholarly debate about where this took place. Is it the Sea of Reeds? Is it a marshland? Maybe uh, the wind just blew it or the currents really just kind of took this marshland maybe knee level deep uh, water out of the way and they walk through kind of sloshing through uh, in mud and things like that. There's all sorts of theories and things. None of them account for the details of the scripture that said he parted the sea and there was a wall of water on the left hand and the right and in the middle was dry ground. This was nothing short of a miracle. Plain and simple. When God revealed himself to Moses, he suspended the laws of nature and fire, and all of a sudden there's a bush, but it's not doing what? It's not burning. And now he's going to reveal himself to his people in a decisive manner, blow their minds, and he suspends the law of nature again, such that there's water, but it's not doing what water normally does. This is a miracle. This is nothing short of a miracle. The people walk through on dry ground, and this strong wind, as Moses lifts his staff up, stretches out his hand over the sea, a strong wind comes, parts the water, dry ground appears, kind of like creation, huh? That's a little bit like the creation account. Remember how uh, I said this is a redemptive story told using creation language? Uh, This is actually what's happening. The the waters again are parting and there is dry ground for the people of God. And then, after they marched all night long in the dark, they actually had light. Between 2 and 6 in the morning, the Egyptian forces charge after them. They rush into the midst of the sea. The waters apparently are still standing. Pharaoh takes the opportunity. All right, maybe we can get him now. And he rushes headlong into the sea. And you know what happens? God causes their chariot wheels to clog all of a sudden, throws the forces into a panic. They're not communicating anymore. It's broken down. It's every man for himself. And then all of a sudden, you know what's going to happen. The Lord's just going to, I don't know, does he snap his finger? Does he speak? Uh, He just. Just like that. Egypt, with all their might, with all their terror, with all their threatenings, swallowed up in the Red Sea. Gone. Never to be seen again. And suddenly we've come full circle, haven't we? We've come full circle when Moses and Aaron appeared before Pharaoh with the rod and saying, let my people go. Pharaoh wants to see a sign. You remember? They throw their staff down and it turns into what? A snake, a serpent. The magicians of Egypt did the same by their secret arts, and now there's multiple Egyptian serpents and the one serpent of Yahweh. And what does he do? He swallows up all the other staffs. What's the symbol? You remember, way back then? As this serpent swallowed up your staffs, so Pharaoh, you will be swallowed up by Yahweh, the God of the Hebrews. Here we are, aren't we? They are swallowed up, literally, by the God of the Hebrews in the Red Sea. A fitting conclusion, a fitting judgment for the Egyptians, isn't it? Because they attempted to do what to the Hebrew babies in chapter 1? Kill them all in the Nile River. And now the Lord would execute divine retribution, vengeance is mine, saith the Lord, and he would kill the entire army in the Red Sea and fill it with blood. Fitting conclusion to the story. Is your mind blown yet? Not yet. It's about to be. Because the question is, did you see Jesus in here? All the application points are important. All those are good. Those are meant for us to take away and to give you hope. Did you see Jesus? you catch him you missed him didn't you you didn't see his name in there It said jesus no i'm kidding it didn't say jesus but he's in here absolutely where is he jesus says he's in here he tells the two disciples on the road to emmaus starting with the law and prophets he showed him all the things concerning himself he even says moses wrote of me in john 5 where did moses write of him well he's all over this We could summarize it by saying, as the Jesus Storybook Bible for Children says, God made a way where there was no way. See, for his people, God made a way where there was no way. Jesus would come. Centuries later, Jesus would come. The true Israel, the true firstborn son, the true mediator, the greater Moses, the son of God. The the final Passover Lamb, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world, the Redeemer and the Savior. And Jesus, through his death and resurrection, would once again make a way where there was no way. Jesus even said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man comes to the Father but through me. Now, it actually gets more explicit. I gave you a whole bunch of religious redemptive threads that come together in Jesus, the firstborn son of God, the final Passover Lamb, the mediator. I'll give you more. But Luke actually goes so far, Paula, can you put Luke 9, 28 to 31 up? Luke makes a very interesting statement in his gospel. And Luke 9 says this, starting in verse 28. Now about eight days after these sayings, this is a confession of the deity of Jesus, uh, he took with him Peter and John and James. And he went up on a mountain to pray. And as he was praying, the appearance of his face was altered and his clothing became dazzling white. Now this is actually going to happen in Exodus, believe it or not. So there's overtones already here. And behold, verse 30, two men were talking with him. Who? Moses and Elijah Moses stands always as a representative of the law. And Elijah, one of the greatest of the Old Testament prophets for his signs and wonders. So you could say he's there with the law and the prophets. Talking with him, Moses and Elijah, who appeared in glory and spoke of his departure, which he was about to accomplish at Jerusalem. Did you see it? You missed it. You missed it. You know why? Because our English kind of clouds the, the... text. This word right here, departure. He appeared in glory and spoke, or they appeared in glory with him and spoke of his departure. Whose departure? Jesus' departure. Now, why is that significant? Because if you could read Greek, if you knew Greek, underneath this English word, departure, is a very, very specific Greek word, exodos. Exodos. Which is actually the book we're in. It's referring to what Jesus is doing. See, what is Luke saying? What is he trying to tell us? Jesus, the one greater than Moses, was leading a greater mass of God's people out of a greater slavery than that of Egypt, and he would do it in a way that would make a greater way where there was no way, an absolutely impossible way And all people would praise His name for it forever and ever. You say, Pastor, what what do you mean? There's no way. What are you describing? See, the Scriptures reveal to us that we stand as sinners, deserving the wrath of a holy God and just God. And there is no way of escape from that wrath and judgment, except for death. That's the penalty. The wages of sin is death eternal death. But Jesus, the only Son of God, only begotten Son of God, made a way where there was no way. How? He took the wages of sin, being death, on himself. He was slaughtered as our substitute, as our Passover lamb, so that all who by faith believe in Jesus for forgiveness of sins will not perish, not die but have everlasting life. And now, because of his death and his resurrection, he walked through death unscathed and made a way where there was no way before. And when we follow him, when we follow Jesus, we too will walk through death and find not death on the other side, not life, but what? Sorry, not death, not wrath. We will find life. We will find life on the other side. Beloved, know this. The Lord your God is fighting for you. He has fought for you. And he will continue to fight for you decisively and definitively. Now, the point of the Red Sea crossing. This is where many pastors kind of, I think, miss the main point. At this point, many would say, hey, where is your Red Sea experience going to come from? Look in your life. Where is God going to part the Red Sea for you in your life? Kind of make the narrative your narrative. Now, surely there's a lot there for us to benefit from, but that's not the main point. The point is not that I want you to leave here looking for your miracle, looking for your Red Sea circumstance. The main point is that God already provided your Red Sea miracle. He already provided a way of deliverance, and you need not look for another At the cross of Jesus Christ at the cross of Jesus Christ Christ made your way of escape there's no need to look for another one there's no need to look for a greater miracle a greater act what's left for us to do is respond to what God has done that's what's left for us to do respond to what God has done respond how we respond the same way the Israelites did. When they saw the bodies of the Egyptians washing up onto the shore, verse 31 sums it all up. Here's the summary. Israel saw the great power that the Lord used against the Egyptians. So the people feared the Lord and they believed in the Lord and in his servant Moses. Kahalui Baptist Church. May this be written of us, that the residents of KBC or of Maui saw the great power the Lord used against his one and only son at the cross of Christ, raising him from the dead. And they believed in the Lord and in his servant, Jesus. Do you believe this morning? Do you believe in a sense that you are following and trusting in him? Are you walking, beloved, and the deliverance already provided for you, or are you still looking at Pharaoh? Are you still meditating on your past? Are you still fearful of the Egyptians and living like a slave? Kahalui Baptist, fear not. Stand firm and see the salvation of the Lord. He will fight for you. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, grant that we would meditate deeply and apply the realities that you have made for us away through your Son, Jesus Christ. May we know that you have made us your own. You have redeemed us. You have called us out of slavery. May we not live like slaves any longer. May we live as people who are free, not using our freedom as an occasion to sin or cause others to stumble, but to build others up and to walk in the newness of life. Would you save many people this morning? If there are some here and they are still maybe in Egypt, maybe they're still in slavery to sin, they don't even know what that means, would you give them life, I pray, through the preaching of your word, in Jesus' name, amen. Now is a time of response. If you would like to pray about anything, if you would like to believe on Jesus Christ today, I'd invite you to come pray with me. I'd love to pray with and for you. I'll be in this room to my right and your left.